Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 39. I'll try to be a little bit more restrained today, if at all possible. I don't know if you've ever um, been to Lancaster to see uh, Sight and Sound. Has anybody been down there? Always, always have great, great productions, very enjoyable. And I, I, I was thinking of that Sight and Sound theme a little bit. When you come to Luke chapter 8, we're not looking at the first 21 verses of Luke chapter 8 because I actually preached that to you about a year ago, but you probably don't remember. I probably could have preached it again and wouldn't have made any difference, but we, we didn't. Um, but when you think of the ministry of Christ, it's all about sight and sound, what you see and what you hear from Jesus. And the first 21 verses of, of, of Luke chapter 8 is all about hearing, being people of faith. If Jesus says it, I embrace it, and I do it. The rest of the chapter is all about what I see in the life of Christ. And we have one miracle after another. We're just going to look at two of them in our time together today. Next week, we'll pick up on the last of those three miracles. The bottom line is, if you have a series of miracles that are put together for us uh, in the Gospels, Jesus wants you to kind of read one after another after another. So by the time you get done, you go like, wow. You know what I mean? To be really, really kind of amazed by it. So we'll be, we'll be looking at this uh, passage here today. The fear factor, which is probably good because who knows what will happen to be up here today. Right? Responding to Jesus' authority over the created world. I've never been out on the sea during a terrible storm, which is going to be the first miracle we'll be looking at. The closest I could come to this was uh, the first time I went down to West Virginia. I was invited to speak at a camp down there, a uh, family camp. And they said, hey, Doug, you got to go out on the New River uh, for, and, and do some rafting. I said, oh, okay, no problem. They put me in a raft with just a bunch of teenagers, which to me didn't seem like a really good idea. <laughs> and, and the guide we were with, who was actually a very, very gifted guide, thought he was just going to have a really fun time with all these teenagers and this guy that was in his raft. Well, there's like, tw- it, you know, they have class five rapids. It's, a, it's, it's really quite, quite the, the scene. There's like 22 rapids. On the, fir- on the very first rapid, he had this idea, let's flip everybody. And he did. He flipped us. Man. And they had told us before what happens when you flip and where you swim. And so, man, I, I'm, I'm over coming up. And he's standing. He, somehow he got back up on top of the raft upside down. I don't know how he does all this. But he was up on top. And he's saying, swim that way. I guess there's rocks all the way down. So I'm doing that. And just the whole way through, I finally got through that rapid. And they pulled me back to the boat. And I got in there. And I thought to myself, I can't do this 22 times. <laughs> I mean, this is going to kill me, you know. And we almost went over one other time, but we didn't. We made it through. And, I mean, I, it was just this sensation of, I remember just going through, Lord, get me through this crazy thing. You know, just that was kind of my sensation all the way through. That's about as close as I can get to this story. And my experience can't compare to this. And one of the things you know about a lot of the disciples is they were very gifted fishermen. And they knew that sea really well. Sea of Galilee, what, about 600 feet below sea level? But what they would have is they'd have these mountainous areas on certain sides, and you could have these huge ravines where cold air would just sweep down, meet the air on top of the water. I mean, you got yourself a storm just like that. Here's one of the things that strikes me about this story. Who told them to get into the boat? Jesus. 
Who fell asleep when they were in the boat? Did you ever feel like that in your life? Did you ever think, hey, couldn't God have stopped this? Right? And where is he? If you've ever had those sensations, then perhaps you can have a sense of what they were experiencing. So look at what the text says. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 8. You have an extended outline in your, in your uh, bulletin. I'm, I'm not going to read through it, but you have it there if you want to look at it later. Now it came about on one of those days that he and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. So Jesus is the one that initiates all this. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And at one level, that makes a lot of sense. It's a, it's a good-sized boat. Remember I told you before, we take up a large area of, of, of this, more than this platform up here. It'd be really, really good size. So he falls asleep in the front. No problem. And a fierce gale of wind descended upon the lake. So it just, the, this wind swept down, met the wind, the warmer air, and before you know it, man, you're in a storm. And they began, they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And again, these are not guys that have just gone out on a boat for the first time. These are guys that know the sea. They know how to direct the boat. They knew all those kinds of things. And they're in a point where they're saying, we're in, we're in serious trouble. Verse 24. And they came to him and they woke him up. And the verb is actually a, you know, it's not a, hey, Jesus, um, Jesus. Oh, no. No, this is what you do when you go and say, hey, wake up. It's much more of that kind of a verb idea there. I mean, it's, it's, there's great passion here. And they came to him and they woke him up saying, master, master, we're perishing. They're looking at the situation. They're saying, we're not going to make it. Now, in all fairness, what do you think about this for a second? The king has come. He's met with these men. He says he's going to change the world through them. He's got all kinds of plans. Do they really think the entire kingdom's going to go down in that boat that day? Well, you know, and when you're, when, you're, when you're overwhelmed with the circumstances, you don't think about all that stuff, do you? And so in their panic, they just say, Master, we're dying. And being woken up, the idea is he was sleeping pretty soundly, okay? He rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. Now, folks, Peter has seen an awful lot in the life of Christ at this point, hasn't he? Remember the last thing he saw when they went out on the lake? Jesus actually filled a whole net with fish, several fish, so, so much so that it the, 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 the boats were, had more than they could handle. They begin to sink. Fair enough. This thing like goes way beyond that. They've seen people healed. Okay? And that, that's, that's something. I mean, you're like, you're amazed by all that. But this goes beyond all that. They wake them up. And I mean, the, the boats going back and forth. The waves were, I mean, it's just, they're going under. And Jesus gets up and says, Quiet. And just like that, it's placid. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a whopper. 
Isn't it? I mean, in all fairness to these guys, in one moment they come to him and they say, Jesus, we're going under. We're perishing, Master. How would you feel? (laughs) This is an incredible scene. And in the midst of that, he says to them, where is your faith? I don't know, man, out there in the water somewhere or something. I don't know. I mean, this is, I mean, I'm petrified. We're dying. Lord, you could do a lot of things we've seen, but you know, whoa, help, whatever. Shh, quiet. I'm going like, guys, you can trust me. As we sang today, you can trust me. And they're so overwhelmed. All they can do, the Bible says in verse 25, is they look at each other. And they say this, and they were fearful and amazed at the same time. You ever have both of those experiences? On the one hand, you're going like, ah. On the other hand, you're going like, oh. And it's just, it's all, they, all this emotion just overwhelming them in this moment. And they say to one another, who is this? That he commands even the winds and the waves and they obey. It just, it, it overwhelms them. In that moment, they're looking at each other because Jesus, maybe Jesus went, shh, and laid back down and went back to sleep again. I don't know. I mean, really, maybe that's, but they're just looking at each other and saying, look, um, we know he's Messiah. Like, he can do anything, anything. So, like, everything, everything is under his control. You got it. You pick up your Bible, you go to Colossians chapter 1. And in that great prayer that focuses on Jesus, it says, Jesus was there at creation. He is the one who sustains and will bring everything to its end. And the disciples get just a foretaste of that, don't they? So, like, is there anything outside of his control? Not in nature. I mean, fish, fish, that's a good thing. Nets and fits, fish and nets, good, great stuff. But like instantaneous placid after an incredible storm. Now, come on, folks. That just doesn't happen. So they're getting this sense of Jesus is awesome. But he's also not, not only because of what he does in the natural world, but what he does in the supernatural world. Notice what the next story says. They sailed, verse 26, to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So they finally got to the other side, probably traveled about six miles. And, and, and they got off, and now they're into Gentile territory. Okay? This isn't Jewish territory. They were in Jewish territory. Now they're into Gentile territory. And as soon as they get off, Look who comes up to meet them. Verse 27. And when he had come out onto the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had put on and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. I want to read one other verse. Verse 29 for just a second to you. Then we'll go back. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, 
And he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. Now, I don't know all of this for sure. The the language is not totally clear. But it strikes me, here you have a man who is demon-possessed. He comes to Jesus. You know, when people are possessed, it's hard to sometimes know where they stop and the demon begins, right? I mean, it gets very, very confusing. But my guess is when Jesus comes, this man knows there is one hope for him and is in Christ. And so he gets to Jesus, which the demons in him don't particularly like. But this man, I want you to think about for just a second. What would it be like to be this demoniac? I don't know how he got into his present stage. I don't know if he had opened himself up. We're going to find out later. It says that there's a legion of demons in him. You know how many, you know how many Roman troops make up a legion in the Roman army? It's closer to, it can be, it can be 50, five to 6,000. It's a, that's a lot. Mary Magdalene was filled, <coughs> was possessed, we found out in chapter eight, by seven demons. That's a lot. One's, one's more than I want. <laughs> this guy is possessed by a legion. Now, it just means an awful lot. Had he done something in his life that set him up for this? I don't know. We have no idea what his background was. The text never tells us. All we know is his present situation, which is totally hopeless. The demon, apparently, they come and they go on this man. And in the times when he's not possessed and out of control, the townspeople shackle this guy up to chains in the area where the tombs are. He's virtually always naked. Do you know the shame that would be? Can you imagine being his mother, his wife, his brother, his sister? I mean, whenever you think of this guy, hey, uh, Zedadiah, Zedadiah, you know? He's shackled, he's chained. A demon comes upon him, and, it, and, and he's being guarded. And my guess is the guard takes off and runs when this happens. He breaks, through those t- he breaks out of those shackles, and he runs out into the desert, into the wilderness. And his entire life is filled back and forth. He's naked. He's chained. He breaks loose. He goes into the desert. He wanders back. They chain him up. They put him around the tombs again. He breaks. He goes. That's his whole life. No relationship with anybody, a social outcast, a drain on society, a pain in the neck. You can go on and on and on. Hopeless, helpless. And I don't know, if I was him, I would wonder sometimes in those times when the demons didn't come upon me, maybe they'll never come back. But they always do. And it's just relentless in this man's life. Shame, dishonor. Hopeless. And he meets Jesus. And the demons don't like it. Notice what happens here in this encounter then with the demons. When he had come, verse 28, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice. And now we have the voice 
of a demon speaking. What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God? I beg you, do not torment me. Doesn't that strike you as a bit of irony? You demons have been tormenting this man nonstop. Demons do two things in Scripture. They torment and they tempt. Again and again and again. All they do is torment this man and this demon who's representing the whole. At this point, we only know that there's one. This demon says to Jesus, please don't torment me. Man, I'm thinking like, you know, what do we have to do with you? Jesus, we would like to have nothing to do with you. There's you and there's us and we're miles apart. Basically, they're saying, leave us alone. And don't torment us. Don't do to us what we did to him. Because he had commanded this unclean spirit to come out. And then Jesus gets a bit more specific with him in verse 30. Notice this. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And folks, at this point, how many demons do you think this guy has? One. But Jesus is going to drill down, isn't he? And it's almost like the representative demon is just trying to get as far away from Jesus as possible and not let him know anything that's going on. And Jesus knows it anyway. What's your name? You can't lie to Jesus. So he tells him that there's a legion of us. For many demons had entered into man, verse 30. And they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And again, folks, scholars debate a lot of these kinds of things. But there is, uh, there is an interpretation of Second Peter and Jude which suggests that, that way back in Genesis chapter 6, and I, this is debated by some, but it's one, one, one possible interpretation of Second Peter and Jude, is that angels that were fallen from heaven tried to cohabitate with, with women. And that what, if that's what Peter and Jude are referring to, then what it's telling us is there was a whole group of fallen angels that were immediately put into a place where they were being confined in judgment until the final day of judgment. But not all fallen angels, just some. And what's probably happening here is, as these demons come face to face with Jesus Christ, the one who not only has authority over nature but has authority over all the entire supernatural world too. They're saying, please, don't do to us what you have already done to them. Please, please, please. And and, 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 and in the the original language, the imploring here, it's a continual imploring, and you get this kind of sense. You know what happens with your kids sometimes when, when, when they really want something bad and they keep asking, 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 asking? You know what I mean? That's what you have here. You have the demons going, please, please, don't send us to the abyss. Don't send us to the abyss. Please, please. That's, 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 that's the picture you have. And in the midst of all that, it's going to go on to say that demons, as they're imploring, don't send us there. They look over and they see these pigs. And Mark tells us there's 2,000 pigs there. And they say, please, let us go into the pigs. And for reasons, folks, which nobody fully understands, I'll give you my take on it, but nobody fully knows Jesus agrees. Because here's what I've always wondered. It kind of seems to me that demons like like a host that they can kind of indwell, right? And so if he lets them go into the pigs, 
why do they immediately destroy the pigs, right? Because what happens? Goes into the pigs, and what happens to the pigs? They rush down this hillside into the sea, and they're all killed. And I'm thinking to myself, I thought you just wanted another host. You know? And I guess what I would want to argue at the end of the day, don't expect any kind of logic with demons anyway. And what I really think Jesus is doing here, because it's a really interesting text, I really think what Jesus is doing by allowing them to go into the pigs, he's giving a visual of the kind of pain that this man faced in his soul every day of his life. You want to see the kind of inner psychological stress and pain and torment and turmoil? Look at what happens when some several thousand demons go into 2,000 pigs and what happens is destruction. I think Jesus allowed for it to show visually what was actually happening internally in that man's life. It's an incredible story. When everybody saw this, they fell down before Jesus and trusted him as Lord and Savior. Is that what the text says? Watch how everybody responds to this. Notice what the text says. I I didn't read about it, but in verse 33, the demons came out from the man, entered the swine, the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and were all drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And certain ones went out to see what had happened. Here's what I think is important. There's, there's three phases. There's herdsmen who are watching the pig who in one moment are out of a job. <laughs> I mean, in all fairness, you have to feel a little bit bad for them. Okay, because all of a sudden, they're, they're watching Jesus over there with this some guy, and all of a sudden, <laughs> or whatever, you know, boom, and the whole thing, man, it's gone. And they're going like, okay, we better go tell somebody about this one. <laughs> you know, you mean, you know, we're going to be in big trouble. So they go down, and, and so what happens is a certain group of people, verse 35, went out to see what happened. So they maybe, at least, at least the guys that owned the pigs. And they came to Jesus. And they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting down at at the feet of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? What happens in Luke's gospel when people sit at the feet of Jesus? They're there for one purpose. They're there to learn. Here is a man whose life was filled with nothing but turmoil, breaking and moving and screaming and hating and everything. And people from the town come out and they say, He's quiet. He's learning. Sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became afraid. So what they did is they went and told a larger group. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. So, So the herdsmen explained that. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes in the surrounding district asked him to depart from them for they were gripped with great fear and he got into a boat and returned. Isn't that strange? So they come up and they see this guy and the herdsmen are saying, oh man, we know him. He's the tomb man and all that. And they're going like, well, but he's fine now. 
So they went and told a larger group. That larger group then came and said, we don't want anybody around our area quite like that. And they meant Jesus. Isn't that strange? I would argue that when you read through this passage, you come away with this deep sense that Jesus Christ is in control of everything. Which either gives us encouragement to submit to him, or makes us say we want to have nothing to do with him. Isn't that true? Because you, you, you can't be close to somebody like that and just be neutral. And so we're going to find one demoniac who is going to come under his authority. And we're going to find disciples who are going to also be learning to come under his authority more and more so in their life. And we're also going to see a whole group of people that will hold Jesus at a distance and say, if that's who you are, we would rather not have anything to do with you. Because if we come to terms with you, we must come under your authority. That's true. They had that one right. Before Jesus left, though, look at verse 38. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. You know what I find to be interesting? Every other request in this story is met, but this guy's. So the demons come and they say, don't torment us, let us go into the pigs. Okay. Leave our land, you scare us. Okay. Jesus, I just want to be with you. No. Really? I mean, this guy's like the hero. And look what Jesus says. But he sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Jesus had another plan for this man, didn't he? This guy just wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, oh, you will be with me, but you'll be with me as a missionary to this area. This is Gentile territory. They don't know anything about me, and you're going to be the first missionary here. At the beginning of this story, here is a man who nobody wanted, who was nothing but a pain, who had no hope, whose life was shackled. And by the end of the story, he's a missionary to reach the people. <laughs> like, who can pull that one off? Chuck, God can take you through the Teen Challenge experience and bring back a different man. Not because of Chuck. Because of Jesus Christ. I mean, folks, this is what our Lord does. You say, well, I'm not going away to Teen Challenge. Yeah, but we all have our struggles, folks. God is the one that can meet us. And my, my great fear is that you could be sitting here and you could take the same stance as those townspeople. And you could say, okay, I got it, Doug. He's the ultimate controller. He controls it all. That's right. 
but I would rather not have anything to do with them. You can do that. You will answer to him one day, though, folks, because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. If you're like the disciples, accept wherever he places you, knowing that he will do what is best, whatever that means. He never is indifferent to your situation, and he never puts you in a place where he's not in control. Don't you ever forget that. Doesn't mean he'll do for you exactly what he did for them. Remember in Hebrews 11? You get to the end of Hebrews 11, a passage all about faith. And, 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 and the writer of Hebrews will say, you know what? Through certain individuals, God turned around kingdoms and brought people back from the dead and did this and did this and did this. And I don't know about you, but I'm reading that part of Hebrews 11. I'm going like, yeah, change my circumstances, God. Then he says, but with others, they wandered and they were killed and they were persecuted of whom the world was not worthy. Did God love the first group more than the second group? He just had a different plan for different individuals. But in all of those situations, folks, whether he changes your circumstances or changes you in the midst of your circumstances, he is in control. And he calls his people to come under that sovereign control of Christ and say, Lord, whatever you want, wherever you put me, I will rest in you. I'll be a little bit uneasy with it sometimes, but I will try to rest in you. And if you are someone who's on the outside saying, Doug, my life is hopeless, there's no way, I want you to know Christ is control of everything. And you can come under his authority, and he will take a man and a woman whose lives, from a a human perspective, are, are waste, and turn you into a missionary that proclaims the goodness of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, nobody can do that but God. Why would we want to live apart from that? Sight and sound. You can hear his words, and you can see him act. When you get done reading this, I, I was just so driven to Colossians that he is over creation, and in Colossians chapter 2, at the cross, he disarms all of the demonic word, right? I mean, that's what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are, submit to the sovereign Lord. Let's pray.